Hello, everybody. Welcome to SALT. Happy Tuesday. Thank you, worship team. Thank you very, very much. Um, I'm glad that you guys are all here. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jared. I've been one of the leaders. I've been coming to SALT for a long, long time now. And uh, it's awesome to be here tonight and to see a lot of faces that I don't even know yet, because I'm used to the times when I knew every face in the room. Uh, and it's just cool to see God is bringing people, God is working in this community and in all of our lives, no matter the season. Uh, so welcome. Glad you guys are all here. And tonight, I'm excited we get to dive back into the letter of Galatians, the book of Galatians. We've been living here all year, since January, since the first Tuesday in January. It's crazy to me. It's already been two whole months, and we're in chapter three. I love it. Taking our sweet time. It's the best way to go. Uh, so... As I've been preparing and thinking about this message and the implications of uh, the words that Paul writes in his letter, there's a story, a personal experience of mine that, that kept coming to mind that I wanted to share with you guys. It's one that I don't love sharing. It's not uh, my favorite story, personally. I love planning things, and, and it was like the end of last fall. I... We love doing this weekend every year with my homies. Jobo, where are you? Jobo is there. Every year we love to go out into a cabin in the woods and do our, our boys weekend, and I look forward to it. And so in the late fall, I was like, I'm going to plan it. So I picked a weekend. I picked a place. I got every one of the guys, all six of us, were in. This is the weekend. Booked it. I was so proud of myself. The next day, I go to work, and uh, our CEO, I go in. And I'm like, hey, guess what? I booked this thing. I'm so excited. I know we have a work trip that week, but they don't conflict. I know. It's the middle of the week for the work trip. It's out of state. We come back. Then I have the guy's weekend. He's like, Jared, those are the exact same days as the work trip. And I was like, what? Like, there's no, I was in denial. And then I looked at the very same email that had my schedule on it. And sure enough, I'm apparently just dumb. I looked at it. I saw it. I assumed, made my plans all around it. I was totally wrong. The worst part about it was that, uh, literally, I, I spent two hours. I didn't say a word to anyone. I'm just at work. I'm so embarrassed. I have to tell all my friends that the weekend I made sure we could all go to. I can't go to. I got all of them in, and now I can't even do it, because I'm, I'm stupid. And, and I spent two hours thinking of ways. I had a whole list that I could make it sound like it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I had every excuse well, I'm like, they don't know that I saw an email that had, like, I'm, I'm serious. It was wicked. I was, like, so convicted later that day with how just, like, that's what came out of me because I messed, like, I messed up. Like, no one's going to care. If someone told me, oh, I'm, I'd be like, oh, dude, it's, don't worry about it. But when I did it, it was, I don't know. I share that because, like, I know I'm not the only one in this room guilty of forgetting plans, messing, messing up with your plans, having plans changed on you or changing plans on someone else, making plans and then regretting where they actually get you by the end of them. And I think it's just funny how, how bent out of shape we get. How bent out of shape we get when things don't go our way, when our plans fail, and there's really there's no one to blame but ourselves. And I just find it so easy to find myself and I think it's easy for any of us to find ourselves measuring our lives by how well we're managing them, right? How well are things going according to our plans? 
measuring our years by how much things are going our way. And um, Lord knows, like, I'm going to freak out if things don't go my way. Like, if something slips outside of my control, that's when the panic meter starts spinning. But the truth is, for all of us, and for me, and that day, and the wake of that mistake, like, the realization, I wasn't in control to begin with. We're not in control, and our plans don't always work out. They're not really set in stone. And putting your hope in your plans and what you have figured out for your life, like, that's going to lead you to either disappointment or destruction. That, I think, is the reality for us. But the good news is tonight, as we dive into the passage, we're going to be talking about God's plan, not ours. And I get the joy to proclaim to you guys the glory of God, whose plan has never changed, will never change, has never been forgotten, has never failed, and whose plan leads you and leads me, leads us all to freedom. That's what we get to talk about tonight. So if you guys have your Bibles, uh, open, open please, to Galatians chapter 3. And as we've been studying Galatians, uh, there's a few things to point out. It's kind of the big picture. It's the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatian people, which is there's a cluster of churches in the province of Galatia. And basically, most of the people in these churches are Gentiles. They were not Jewish. They were not a part of Israel or God's people throughout the Old Testament. They were Gentiles, and now they've believed in the gospel. And so he's writing these churches, and one of the big themes throughout Galatians is that Paul is rebuking them. He's calling them out uh, because they have been receptive. They've been open to these false teachings about works-based righteousness, about they were being essentially convinced by these false teachers that in order to actually be saved, they had to practice and follow all the laws that the Jews did, even though they weren't by birth Jews. They were never under the law, but now they have to go back and follow it. And then we also see in the, in the big picture of Galatians that uh, Paul's defending his own testimony and his own authority as an apostle, which is also under attack. And then we see Paul defending the true gospel that was preached by Christ and by Christ's apostles, which is that Salvation comes by grace and through faith alone, not by works of righteousness. And so those are the big themes, but as we zoom in on chapter 3, I just want to highlight something that Paul mentions in uh, verses 5 through 6 of chapter 3. When he's pointing out the foolishness of what the Galatians are falling for, he uses Abraham as his example of faith. He uses the father Abraham. And this is so, so important because it cuts really to the center of the lies that were being told to the, to the Galatian people, right? They were being told that they had to start practicing the laws of Judaism, of which Abraham is basically the founding father, okay? Like the first person to whom God revealed himself and spoke to, made a covenant, made promises with, which then trickles down to Moses and the law and then God's people going into the promised land and et cetera, et cetera, to where they were today. And so there's no one more important to talk about if they're discovering the truth of who's right here. Is it by faith alone, or are we doing the works of the law? And yet that's exactly why Paul builds his whole theological defense upon Abraham. He's using their own authority figure to prove them wrong. Before we even get to where we're starting tonight in verse 15, he name drops Abraham four more times. And it's exactly what the Galatians need to hear. And so we're going to talk about Abraham, and Paul's even going to quote from Genesis 
from Abraham's story in Scripture. And all of those references, you go to Genesis chapter 12, chapter 12 through 15 especially, you can read Abraham's story. And I'd highly encourage you guys to do that as we go along with Galatians, because it's going to be a reoccurring theme. So tonight we start in verse 15. So if you guys have your Bibles, I'm going to read Galatians 3, starting in 15. Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. I'll pause there just a little bit because we have to remember, right before he says that, right before he says, I'm going to give you an example. Like, what's he giving them an example of? Right before this verse, the last two weeks, we heard from Zach and Nathan sharing on this. And Paul has made some really bold statements. He's told them that God's promise to Abraham all those thousands of years ago was actually preaching the gospel of the Messiah. He says that all who rely on the law are actually under a curse. And then he says that Christ redeemed them from the curse of the law so that the blessing promised to Abraham would come to the Gentiles as well. And that that blessing is salvation, being filled with the Spirit of God, being saved from their sins. And so essentially, there's made these bold statements, and now Paul's like, okay, Galatians, all right, you guys, listen up. You want to talk about covenants? Okay, let's talk about covenants. You want to talk about putting the yoke of the law on yourself? Well, let me tell you about a covenant greater than that one. (laughs) Let me tell you about the covenant that came first. The, The promise of faith is greater than the covenant of the law. Now, sit down, and I'm going to prove it. And I'm going to give you an example to do so. And so when he talks about a covenant, I've said that word a lot. He's talking about what is essentially like this, it's an institution of God, a covenant, a divine, this binding of the wills. It's far much more than just an agreement, but it's like this soul level agreement between two parties, right? It's holy. It's more than just a contract that you sign, sign on the dotted line. It's that's why we call marriage a covenant. God instituted marriage and he made it a covenant. Like it's the one fleshness of a man and a woman. And in the context of what Paul's talking about, the Galatians and the Romans at the time, like they understood something like a last will and testament. They would understand that to be a form of a covenant between somebody and then that person's heir. Like whoever is the heir of your fortune, uh, you have a covenant with that person and there are obviously terms in that covenant. So... When I die, these are the terms. You bury me here, you do this, you do that, and then you get my inheritance. That's the covenant. And Paul's just using this as an example because they got it. That was happening all the time. People died, people had these these covenants in this last will and testament. And so while he's going to be demonstrating and proving God's truth, he's using it with an example that they would all understand, just basic principles as people, because Paul's writing to be understood. That's what's so awesome about Paul's letters is he wants to be understood. He's not writing to like flex his theological muscles and be like, submit to my teaching because I'm amazing. Like he's not flaunting it in their face. He's, he knows these people. He's met with these people and he's writing them as someone who knows them and he knows what their lives look like and he just wants them to understand the truth. And so if it's true that you have a man-made covenant and everybody knows, you don't, once the terms are set, they're agreed upon, it's done, it's sealed. You don't change it, you don't back out. Those just, that just doesn't happen. And if that's true for man, how much more so for God? That's where we continue in verse 16. 
He writes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul's defense of justification, what makes you right with God? Paul's defense is based on the fact that not only is God's covenant with Abraham based on faith, which contradicts the law, you can't earn it with works, and gain it by faith. Not only is God's covenant with Abraham by faith, but it came first, 430 years before the law that was given to Moses on the mountain in the desert. The law was never a a way of establishing a way to inheriting God's blessing. And even more so, this promise that God made to Abraham was ultimately about the Messiah. It was about Jesus That was God's plan from the very, very beginning that there would be the one to represent the many. There would be the one offspring to pay the price of the sins of the many. And so if the flawed and sinful people that Paul's writing to here, if they know that you don't cancel and you don't change a man-made covenant, what are the chances of a perfect and a holy God doing exactly that? Right? There isn't. So we see, like Paul's demonstrating, God did institute the law, but it doesn't cancel out the covenant he already made. If it did, that would void the very promise he made in the beginning and compromise God's very character. He wouldn't be promise keeper. He would be promise breaker. And the Galatians certainly didn't believe that. God did institute the law, but he wasn't adding to the promise that he originally made. He wasn't adding to the terms because they'd already been established 430 years earlier. The law served another purpose. And so, it's just simple logic now, right? The Galatians were hearing, you have to become like the Jews and do all the laws that they do and follow all the rules they do if I want to be really saved. But if that's true, then that means something changed from when God promised Abraham that he would receive a blessing by faith. So God either broke his promise or he added to his terms after Abraham died, which that's kind of shysty, man. (laughs) God didn't do that. It cannot be true according to God's character. So he's putting the Galatians and the false teachers who were telling them this really in a pickle. Like, either God's not who you think he is because he doesn't keep his promises, or you're on the wrong bandwagon. Like, you don't have the right idea about God's plan for salvation. And it's just, it's because he cares. You know, I can just feel... Paul saying, like, to paraphrase, he's just saying to them, don't believe the lies, you guys. The law can't bring you to salvation. It can't make you good enough following these rules. And it's not because it's my opinion. It's not because I'm the smartest. It's because God himself never planned for it to do that. The promise is superior to the law. Like, I'm not fired up about it. I'm not calling you out just because you don't agree with me, but because God's very truth is what's under attack. And if you disregard it, you have to face him, not me. It's not about Paul. Look to Abraham, he's telling them. Look even to Abraham. His righteousness came from faith, not from works. 
God's very plan from the beginning was to send Jesus so that all who believe in his name, the Jews and the Gentiles, all the same, that they would all be blessed by God's grace through faith, just like Abraham was. So, if you're wondering then after all this, like, okay, wow, Paul hates the law, got it, doesn't like it, throws it out. Why? What, so why? Obviously the law was a thing. Well, that's where we get to 19. You're right on time. So verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's a lot. It's a lot of words, a lot of depth. Could be here all night. But what I want to focus on, what I really want you to see here is that the law doesn't contradict the promises that God made. It's because they never were meant to serve the same purpose. If God had really wanted the law to lead people to life, then it would. It's as simple as that. And yet I think we all know, and the Galatians knew, as they were trying to figure it out, that it wasn't leading them to life. That following all the rules and trying our best to do everything perfectly, that doesn't lead us to life. It doesn't lead us to fulfillment. And sometimes we stop and we ask why. We're like, why not? As we think... What I've done compared to everyone else, it's not that bad. I've read the commandments. I know the commandments. Like, I don't do them that much. Or I'm looking around here, and I think I'm doing all right. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Can't God just be happy that we're trying the best to follow all these rules? I mean, geez, I spent my whole life studying them. I can't even remember them all. And I just have to say, like, if that is where your mind is going right now, you don't understand the size of sin. You don't understand the severity of the condition that it leaves you in. James chapter 2, Jesus' own brother, he writes this later in his life. Forever, this is verse 10, James 2, 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Surely that's got to be out of context. That can't make sense. That does not seem fair. I kept 9,000 rules and I broke one. And now I'm guilty for it all. But the reason that that is true as as is God's word, the reason that is God's word and God's truth is because the consequences of our sin aren't rooted in the value of what we've done or what we do. They are rooted in the value of whom we have transgressed and what against we have transgressed. What have we sinned against? The value of that is what determines the consequence of our actions. I'll give you some human examples, like Paul. Take a big, take the biggest key on your keychain, big old rusty, ugly thing, go out in the parking lot, find my truck. Actually, wait, 
My wife drove. Sorry, don't do this. Go to my house, find my truck, scrape it all the way down from headlight to taillight. What the heck, bro, why'd you do that? I don't know, but a couple hundred bucks, whatever. I don't care. We might not be friends after that, but you pay me a couple hundred bucks, it's fixed. Go to the same parking lot, take the same key, go find a brand new 2024 Tesla. Do the same thing, headlight to taillight. Send me a picture of the bill, tell me the difference. You did the exact same thing, but the cost is a lot higher because of what you scratched. You take a gun and you point it and you shoot and you take something's life. If it's a deer, the consequence of your action is you have to carry dinner home. Okay. But if it's a fellow image bearer of God, if you take the life of another person, it's unspeakable, it's punishable by death. So now picture any sin that you've ever committed. Literally, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me which sin it is, how small you think it is. And understand that you've committed it against the creator of the universe the provider of every breath that you take, and the author of all that is good in this world. God so infinitely holy and perfect that we can't even gaze upon his brilliance in our best moment. Have you guys heard that the whole world, all of creation is under the curse of death because why? Because a man and a woman chose to eat the wrong fruit. That's it. That's it. I'm surprised that I don't have more non-believers come up to me and be like, wait, wait, wait. Every evil thing in this world is here because you're saying some guy and some girl grabbed an orange instead of an apple. Like, that's why? That's it? You guys are crazy. I don't know why more people don't question me on that. <laughs> it's because it has nothing to do with the, what they did or what they ate, but to who they disobeyed. They disobeyed God, and all sin is disobedience to God. That's what I want us to understand. All sin is against him. It doesn't matter if it's the teeniest, tiniest little thing we can ever imagine. You have violated the holies, the holy of holies, and not every good thing you could ever do for the rest of your life to make up for it can actually pay that price. You can't pay that fine. And that is, it's bad news. If it feels like bad news, it is. That's bad news. The truth is that we can't do anything to make ourselves worthy of God, to, make our, to save ourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. The good news of what Paul is saying is that you don't have to. And he's begging the Galatians, stop trying. <laughs> so we pray, I want to praise God that the law was not intended to be our shot at redemption. God was not literally like, okay, guys, here's the rules. You follow all those, awesome, you're in. That's it. There's no other plan. They wouldn't even got off that mountain and earth would be vanquished. We wouldn't be here today. So all that being said, right, Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't hate the law. He's, a, he's demonstrating in those verses as long as we went through all of them, but really briefly, he's going through those and showing that the law did have a purpose. Now, I'll loosely break it down into three things. Three things. The purpose of the law. And the first is that God gave them the law to reveal morality. To, to show to, to reveal to his creation how he defines good and evil. 
The second reason, the second purpose of the law is to guide the well-being of God's people until the Savior came. Paul had just mentioned that uh, in, what was it, 19 through 24 there, that it was like a guardian. It was to guide their conduct, to put boundaries around the people of Israel, to keep them going the right direction, even though they bounced off those walls as much as they could. And third, the purpose of the law was to convict people of their sin. It was designed to make known to them their need for a savior. And Paul's simply saying in these verses, the big picture is that the law has served its purpose. That the revealing of all that God's perfect holiness requires of you is utterly impossible for you to actually do, to actually live up to. That's why it says that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, and it, but it doesn't stop there. It did that so that they would realize there was no way they could save themselves and designed to turn them to his son. Designed by, purpose, uh, by God from the beginning so that they would not rely on their works, that they would know their works are not enough, but that they would know and believe that his son, that his Christ was enough. And as I've been thinking about this, it's just, it's become so clear to me that the world we live in here, our culture, our society, the whole world at large, I mean, people don't believe this. This is not what we see in the news cycles. Our societies don't thrive under the peace of knowing that Christ has paid it all and there's nothing left to prove to God. You look out in the world and you see people who hate God. They hate him because he is the light that exposes their sin. And boy, you don't have to need much proof for me to know that people love their sin. People are desperate to find out who they are and what their purpose is, and yet we're also so desperate to forge our own identities, to define our own success, to live life according to our own plans. And make no mistake, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if the world knows, oh, you love Jesus? We don't care. Have Jesus. But what you really need is to figure out your status, figure out your life, figure out what you're going to do right here, right now. That's what you need. That's what they're selling. Every time you open your phone and you look at some feed, every time you're on the news, every time you go through the grocery store. The culture doesn't care if you want to have Jesus, but you need to have the right school. You need to choose the right school. You need the right career. You need to have the people in your life who make you happy. You need the right plan to get the most out of your life, whatever it is you want out of life. And you need to have the right vision of who you really are and who you want to be, and more than anything else, you need to be true to yourself. Sure, you might have Jesus, but really, honestly, you need more. That's what the world is selling you. That then, and only then, will you be satisfied. You guys, that is just... That's such a heavy burden to bear for broken people in a broken world like you and me to have it all on your shoulders. For people like us whose minds are never made up, whose lives are struck by tragedy, whose emotions change every day until someone asks you what you want and you're like, I don't know. It's different than it was yesterday and it'll be different again tomorrow. 
People whose plans fail us, whose plans are forgotten, whose plans are changed beyond our control, or whose plans lead us to the very thing we desperately wanted to avoid with all our life. You'll be told that you need more. But I, I want to tell you right now that more will never be enough. If you believe the lie, instead of satisfaction, you will find heartbreak, you'll find disappointment, anxiety, confusion. And I want to see you spared from this trouble. Just like Paul, he wants to see the Galatians spared from this trouble. They believed they needed more. They needed the law. Yeah, we have Christ. We've heard the gospel, but we need the law. I want to see you guys floating through life free from the enormous weight on your back, the the burden of your own sin, the burden of the pressure to try to live your best life now. I want you to be free from that. So let's read the final verses of our passage tonight in Galatians 3.25. We'll the end here in 29. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is where we end in the scriptures tonight. This whole argument, this whole defense, everything Paul's saying, God's plan from the beginning. The result is right here. The result is this. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer left to the curse of our own wickedness. And because of faith in Jesus' name, anyone can become children of God. When we let go, when we repent of our sin and we trust in his name, now we belong to Christ. We have put on Christ When God sees us, he sees Christ in us. And now we are heirs to God's promise. God's promise that he made all those thousands of years ago to Abraham. You guys, that is true freedom. And that right there is freedom that only faith can buy. Faith here is the great equalizer. You see in those verses, and don't worry, like verse 28 Paul did not just go non-binary on us. I know. He said, there is no male and female. Don't freak out. I was like, wow, there's so many people I know. I don't ever want to see that verse. (laughs) (laughs) Paul's not saying it doesn't matter or it doesn't exist. We've had it all wrong. He's saying that these differences, they don't affect our position before God. They never did. Like, Gentiles, you guys are Christians. Jews, you guys are now Christians. You believe the gospel. You see this wall, this difference, this distinction. Like you're going to go to heaven and God's going to have the Jews over here and the Gentiles over here. Like, it doesn't matter. You're both justified by faith and faith alone. There is no difference amongst the saved. He's telling them it doesn't matter if you're trying to keep the law or if you've never heard it and you've broken it a thousand times. It doesn't matter if you've got freedom Or if you're a slave, it doesn't matter if you're a man or you're a woman. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you think you have your life under control or you just admit it's a total train wreck. It doesn't matter. None of these things, these aspects of your identity, these worldly differences, they don't 
bring you any closer or any further away from being saved. Paul's ex- demonstrating them to them beautifully that being saved means that God sees you and treats you as completely righteous because when he sees you, he sees Christ. And that in Christ, you are unified with one another. You can call each other and smile and go, you're my brothers and my sisters. And we are heirs of the same promise from God. It has always been and it will always be about Christ. That's all I want you to see. Every time I'm up here, every time we open our Bibles, there is nothing better. There is nothing you need that is more. Has the reality struck you that God set the stage for Jesus and this promise thousands of years before he was ever even born? 400 years before he even gave the law. And that under the law, outside of Christ, we are all enemies of God. And yet, somehow we're able to read and rejoice the sweetest truth that Paul just said, that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God. Is that not sweeter than honey and more precious than gold? As I've been soaking in Paul's words here, honestly, it it breaks my heart trying to put myself in the shoes of the Galatians that he's talking to. Like these people, they weren't under the law before. They were Gentiles. And they knew the gospel. They'd heard the gospel Paul has brought them the gospel. They know that Christ was crucified. They believe in him. And yet somehow, some way, somewhere down the road, someone convinced them that they, they still weren't enough. Even in Christ, they weren't enough? How do you buy that? It's sad. It's really sad. They decided they had to adopt some new, new way of life or some other way of life, something more that would make them good enough. They picked up what they thought they needed, but they were shackles. They shackled themselves again to the burden to have to perform well enough to earn God's approval, which spits in the face of Christ. It's as if he died for nothing. And I can only like, speculate or imagine the weight of the feeling of failure that they were under. The insecurity of going into the law after having Christ and trying to put it on and being like, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> Failing to keep the impossible standards of God's perfection. It seems almost silly to me at first on paper to go who would trade in freedom in Christ in his substitution? Who would trade that for something that we can control ourselves? For something that we have to keep up with? But the more and more that I look at it, the more and more I'm like, are we really any of that different? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you, have you felt this? So worried about your identity and wondering, like, am I enough? Is what I have, is who I am enough for God? Is it enough for me? Is it enough for the people who I care about? Comparing yourself to the achievements, to the strengths, to the relationships, to the circumstances of people around you? Not really admitting it, but 
believing in your heart that somehow they got ahead. Somehow they have more of God's favor. What am I, what am I lacking? What do I need to do? What do I need to add to my life so that I can be there? And it might not be the laws of legalism like it was for the Galatians, okay? That's what Paul's speaking to. But I think like the Galatians, even some of you have been convinced that you need something more. And to make it worse, there's screaming voices and flashing lights of this world that hates God telling you he's not enough, promising you he's not enough, telling you you need that romantic feeling that you see in the movies to complete you. You need to be true to your heart's desires, right? Wherever they lead you, you have to be true to yourself. You need to be wealthy and successful if you want to be content. You need to take control. You need to forge for yourself the best life, and you need to do it now. There's an urgency I'm not saying that all of these things are inherently evil or that you should reject any moment of happiness in this world. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that you don't need them to be good enough. You don't need them to be good enough. I'm just here to tell you guys what Paul is telling the Galatians, that Jesus has come. Faith in his name, you know his name. It is proclaimed to you every time you open God's word. And you are now all invited to become sons and daughters of God. And that is all that you need. Nothing the world is selling you. There's nothing that the world is trying to sell you that you need. He alone is enough. That's all I want you to hear tonight as we leave. And if you believe that, then you are free. You are free with a freedom that only faith can buy. So don't give a foothold to the lies that tell you otherwise. Because there's nothing about your status, about your personality, about your weaknesses, about the cards you've been dealt, about the trials and the tragedies that you've gone through. There's nothing about these differences or distinctions that can take away what God is offering. And we might know this, we might believe this, but I know if I'm being honest and if we're being honest, it's still a struggle. We're always finding ourselves living and measuring our lives according to our plans. So as we think about what do we do from here, what do I, how can we apply what I'm talking about, I just want to start with saying, why don't we try trusting God's plan? We know our, I can see that our plans are outside of our control, that they let us down, that they don't satisfy us when we reach the end of them. And so I want you to just think about what are the plans you've made for yourself? What are your hopes and your dreams? Give them to God. Share them with God. And let God's plan come first. Picture those things that you have your fist wrapped so tightly around. Those things that you're convinced you have to have. And open them up. Repent of that need to hold on to them so tightly and hold them with open hands, trusting that God can and will use everything that happens for his good purposes and trust that he knows a lot better than you do right now. Abby and I are, my wife's right there, say hi. We're feeling that right now. We found out last December that all of our plans are changing, all of them, 
every single one. We find out that this August, Abby and Jared will now officially become mom and dad. And <laughs> Abby's saying we're already mom and dad. Yes, 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 I know. It still swirls around my brain. Things get a little blurry every time I say it out loud and I think about all the things that are changing and all the things that are immediately different every time. Yeah, I don't know, it's crazy. There's also a lot of voices going on, a lot of outside voices speaking in, shouting in, telling us how to plan, what to do, where to go, telling us, don't name your baby Craig, my neighbor's name was Craig, and he was the worst, don't do it. And we're like, oh my gosh, okay, okay. I have an uncle named Craig, Craig is a fine name, okay, I'm not saying that. It's the only thing, guys, the only thing that gives us peace and all that is sharing our plans with God and letting go of the results, choosing to trust. I'm not saying we do it every single day perfectly, but when we're not, we're overwhelmed, and when we do, God brings peace. That's the testimony I can give you guys. Because our plans, they might or they might not go the way that we hope, but God's plan is a sure foundation for our lives. It cannot fail, and it will not be overthrown. From the promise he made to Abraham thousands of years ago to our Lord Jesus' promise that he is with us always till the end of the age. I'm not telling you that it'll be easy or pain-free. In fact, I'm confident that we will all struggle along the way as we are trying to trust that Jesus is enough and resist the temptations of the world as we try to trust our plans to him and hold them with open hands, no matter what the outcome is. But as we struggle, our hope is that in Christ, we can embrace the struggle. There's a song called The Struggle and an album called The Struggle. And I have been singing that song everywhere I go for weeks now. And it's stuck in Abby's head. <laughs> and afterwards, you'll probably hear me singing. It'll be stuck in your head too. But it's such a beautiful reminder to me. The lyrics proclaim, they shout, hallelujah, we are free to struggle. Because we're not, we are not struggling to be free. Praising God and saying that your blood bought and makes us children. So children, drop your chains and sing. It's stuck in my head. I need that in my head every day. I want you guys to feel free to struggle, to stop struggling to be free in the areas of your life where you are struggling to be free. Christ was always God's plan to give forgiveness for sin, to bring people into his family, and there's no distinction between us. There's no distinction. There's nothing about your life that can take that away, what God is giving by faith. We are all justified and saved by faith the same. So what you do with a message like that is you believe it. You believe that that's true and that Christ is enough and then you guys, you, you share it. Because for all of you that are in here, there are so many more out there in the world who actually believe that they need what the world is selling them. They believe it and 
if it's not true and their efforts to be enough, their efforts to please God, their efforts to please and worship themselves, they're futile. They're not going to save them. Well, if we love those people, and I know there are people who you love in that boat, then they need to know the truth. That they can't fix that ache in their soul. They can't earn their way to righteousness. And they are not the source of their own identity and purpose. They need him who is greater. They need Jesus Christ. So I'll pray, and then we'll go into small groups and chat about our passage, and then we'll get to do some more worship together. Lord God, my only prayer for all of us tonight as a community is that we would trust and hear and see written all over your word and written all over your character that you are enough and that you in your grace have given yourself, have given your son so that by faith alone we believe in him and trust in his name and that is enough and may we reject anything that tells us otherwise. Help us, God, to hold our lives and our plans of this world with open hands, looking to you, running to you, seeking you as our shelter and our refuge. You are so, so good to us, Lord. Let's pray tonight as our hearts are open, as we go to these groups to discuss your word, that you would be changing our hearts. In your holy name we pray, amen.